Hello. Um, what am I doing? Oh yeah, who's sponsoring the show? West Wing Nissan is sponsoring the show again. The uh, the UK's largest Nissan dealership. And because of that, they get exclusive deals with Nissan, whereby you can only get certain makes and models of Nissan vehicles from Westway Nissan. They do private and commercial vehicles. They do purchase and hire. Uh, they also give up to 20% discount off purchases for serving personnel or veterans, which is amazing. Go and bag yourself a deal. Get along to one of the dealerships. Or check them out online, westwaynissan.co.uk. They're also recently... They have also recently announced that they are currently the only retailer signed up to support Mission Automotive. Mission Automotive an initiative partly founded, I think, by Mission Motorsport. Um, and Mission Automotive, they aim to get retired, retiring soldiers, injured or not, into the automotive business, basically helping veterans and service leavers get jobs on Civvy Street, which is an amazing thing to do. Westway have also just signed military covenant and they're targeting gold status targeting it and they are absolutely going to get it i'd be very very surprised if they did not awesome to have westway sponsoring us as always westway nissan on social media uh yes on linkedin yes facebook yes instagram and i think twitter as well they're right social media freaks they're all over it and um westway nissan at credit uk but your best bet is just to get into one of the dealerships thank you guys uh, next on the list is Rugby for Heroes sponsoring us today. They organise events to raise money for military charities, or sorts of charities actually. They've been going since 2009 um, when they were founded after Private Joe Whitaker, a four-pile lad, got killed in Afghanistan, unfortunately. And since 2009, Rugby for Heroes have raised over £100,000. Like I said, they do that by uh, fundraising events, awesome fundraising events, and they've got one coming up very, very soon. 10th and 11th of May it is happening, which is a Friday and a Saturday. Friday evening, beers, bands, drink, food. And on a Saturday, more of the same, more bands, loads of stores, lots of veteran-owned um, stuff, uh, veteran-owned businesses there. And the stands, like I said, food, apparel, Team Rubicon, i got a stand there. We're another sponsor of the show. And um, and also an invitation to a rugby match going on. Starting about 1, one thirty in the afternoon uh, between... A military veterans team, mm, uh, me being one of them, we haven't played, none of us have played together, literally the first time we uh, we meet each other as a team, we're going to be on the day, and uh, we're playing Old Leventonian RFC's veterans team. So everyone's around a 35-year-old mark, give or take a few years, stroke decades, and um, it's going to be a good one. Awesome. You can buy tickets online for that, for that event, which are a five if you're buying them online. If you're on Eventbrite, just search for Beer and Gin Festival, Rugby Heroes. Um, you can also just turn up the day and do it, like a tenner. Uh, yeah, you can, there's camping available. There's glamping available on site, and there's really cheap, good, cheap and good variety of uh, local hotels. So um, I'll see you there. It's good. I'm also inviting a lot, a lot of the podcast, well, all of the podcast guests have been invited along. To that, it's going to be kind of the 2019 HR party in support of that Beer Engine Festival for Rugby for Heroes. So come along, meet a load of awesome, like-minded people. Enjoy me getting smashed by people at the rugby and then getting smashed in alcohol afterwards. It's going to be fantastic. There are families going as well. So children and uh, families are invited. That's it. Rugby, F-O-R, heroes.org. Rugby number four heroes on social media. Lastly, 
Team Rubicon UK are sponsoring us today. Team Rubicon UK are a disaster response charity. They dis- they respond to disasters both overseas and in the UK. They do that by using predominantly ex-military volunteers who form up their prestigious grey shirts. That's what they call us volunteers, that, that, that team of unique individuals who are willing to put themselves, yeah, put themselves in a bit of discomfort, put themselves at short notice, deploy in and go in and help people in the times of need. Most recently they deployed to uh, Indonesia. The last team went on Christmas Day, give up the Christmas Day to go to uh, Indonesia to help those people getting smashed by typhoons, monsoons, flipping everything. You know, it's like down in those parts of the world, they just get hammered all the time and they're always needing help. And TV becoming out there to assist them with their, in that in that uh, in that disaster, that that third disaster they had last year. So tvbeconuk.org forward slash donate. They can only deploy on these things and help these people so far as their funding allows. So if you fancy donating a few pennies, every little helps. Remember the old lads are saying, every little helps. So if you can just donate a couple of quid, it's better than nothing, right? tvbeconuk.org forward slash donate. But he, but as well, if you want to. Go and become a volunteer with uh, Team Rubicon. Go to teamrubiconuk.org and sign up for your online courses. Do a DBS check, and then um, and then you go down and do a course at Chilmark, and you, that's you on your way to becoming a disaster response volunteer. A grey shirt with Team Rubicon. I'm in the process now. I signed up in January, and I am well, starting my first part of my in-person training next week, and it continues the end of April. I'm very excited to be able to contribute to Team Rubicon. Very excited indeed teamrubiconuk.org thank you very much that is it for the sponsors today on to the show my guest today is chris shirley former royal marine soldier and an officer royal marine a royal marine marine and an officer and uh royal military police and he is now the he's a ah, he also worked at the bbc high risk team and he's now um he's founded a an organization called the hiatus foundation which uh, which we got into on the podcast so without further ado we'll go straight into it uh, HR with Chris Shirley. Enjoy. Right. Yeah. I had. Well, I had. I had a question ready. Hmm. So, I want. <laughs> seems a short time. We've got all the bullshit out. What? Tell me what has gone on. What has gone on in your life to lead you to be? Am I correct in saying, just coming back from doing a bunch of things in Afghanistan, one of which was snowboarding? Uh, that's most of the way there, yeah. <laughs> I didn't go snowboarding on this last trip, but essentially I did. I have just come back from a self-funded trip to Afghanistan, uh, which was spent mainly in the company of athletes in Kabul, uh, which is kind of strange during the, the peace talks and the snow in the city, because obviously everything here about Kabul is just war zone, murder, death, kill, isn't it? Yeah um what <laughs> what led me to Af- afghanistan in the first place to go there as a civvy well you tell me are you let's get to the point you're at now cutting about london with loads of flipping meetings ready for getting ready for whatever, <laughs> <right>? <laughs> you tell me hiatus foundation yes yeah okay um hiatus foundation is something i'm in the process of creating now to get support for athletes that i feel are underrepresented uh hiatus itself is a word that mainly the americans use that it means like a gap or something that's missing so uh what if the first thing that came to mind when i was thinking about ways that you can support athletes that have you know missing something was that hiatus just seemed to feel like a natural fit it is a word i've been banding around for a couple of years with 
uh like a personal blog of when i was when i was leaving the marines how to get all the knowledge and uh experiences i was having at the time out to other people that could obviously benefit from it in a bit in a way like what you're doing with this podcast now mm-hmm. so um how did i end up in afghanistan uh it's a, lo- a very long story essentially uh i never deployed to afghanistan in the military despite having been in for 12 years um and had a massive curiosity as to what the country looked like so my brother spent uh about 13 years in in the military and he deployed there three times obviously being uh, a bootneck obviously the units I'd, I'd gone to we'd either done preparation for going or i'd done individual training to go out for roles which subsequently changed um and so it was it was one of those d- career defining thing subjects that you know you spend so much time preparing for and everyone talks about it as such a defining thing during the junior career that when you don't end up going with everyone else you feel massive like you've missed out on something um so it was in a word curiosity that took me out to afghanistan the first time uh yeah the first time and the second and third time <laughs> <laughs> so when did you, when did you get out uh early 2016 so I'm in my third year of transitionality. So tell me, what, so tell me what that was like. You, you got out, and then how how long before you got out and then went to Afghan? Uh, it, so I got out in I just did my transition in 2015. So yeah. sort of like summer 2015, I guess. Uh, I did the first had my first interactions with Team Rubicon, who obviously you've had uh, Rich Sharp on here and. Uh, obviously, you're you're a grey shirt volunteer as well. I'm on my way to being a grey shirt. I mean, oh yeah. Training, yeah, have you not got yeah, your grey yeah, shirt? Yeah, I signed up, and then I, I've got my induction next. Part part they've changed it now. They changed the training now, so you do the induction and your um, domestic responder course yeah, in, yeah. in a one. So I've got that. I'll, by the end of April, I'll be sorted with that. Oh, that's um, but I digress. Yeah, I've had Paul Godonis on as well. Who's a great, who's a great shirt. Yes, yeah, yeah, and he's yeah. he's a massive influence as well on the grey shirt community, isn't he? Done, mm-hmm. he's done a lot for the organisation over the last mm-hmm. couple of years. Um, so yeah, so 2015, <clears throat> uh, I had my first interaction with Team Rubicon. I went to Nepal for two weeks uh, later on in the year to do a, a shelter construction program in Gorka, which is where the, the epicenter of the earthquake was, uh, and that gave me the when I was in transition, that gave me the idea that I wanted to do something with purpose and that um, in the same way that you're drawn to the military because it's not only a lifestyle, but it's uh, something that brings purpose. Uh, I, I knew I wanted from that point onwards something that had the same thing. Uh, so I guess in transition, you start to look at a whole load of career streams, don't you? From If you if you imagine like everywhere from one end of the spectrum that is like business you know finance and that's a you know quite a typical um bootneck officer route isn't it into sort of like the financial sector you've got everywhere in the middle which is say management consultancy uh you're less t- you know less sort of capitalistic business i'd say and then all the way over to like the left-hand edge of, a, of the spectrum which is say like your your hardline humanitarianism charities you know low pay but high uh like high amount of meaning within your work mm-hmm. um so <clears throat> kind of through that year of transition i was trying to figure out whereabouts i would slot into this this employment spectrum um and had the meetings very along with the early on with the people in finance and knew that were you, working were you commissioned was, when you were in yes uh oh. half my career was yeah okay. so the first half of it was non-commissioned and the second six years was was commissioned um, Go on, sorry i interrupted you Go yeah that's no, <laughs> um so yeah that that time uh when i was trying to figure out what part of the sector i wanted to go into um, my time with Team Rubicon helped confirm that I wanted to be in like the the charity NGO, some, something with a bit more purpose, and say like 
uh, like hardline financial uh, services. Um, so I left that and had some more meetings and uh, eventually got into the BBC as as a, an advisor on the high risk operations team. Um, did six months in New Broadcasting House in Oxford Circus, which is, I don't know if you know much about the BBC, but I've got a couple of thousand people there across nine floors. Oh, really? It's a, it's a really cool, creative place to work. But uh, in terms of someone who spent 12 years trying to avoid the office as much as possible, it's uh, is a real sort of cultural shock. You know, you, you, you're you not surrounded by people who you can, you know, draw, <laughs> you know have a, a real open relationships with it. Let's say, you know, you can openly swear and have a Weird, very isn't relaxed, it? isn't it? Weird, and not, isn't it? Exactly, yeah, yeah. As soon as, you, as soon as you go into... The civilian employment sector you become hyper aware of just how many uh how much slang and swear words you use on a daily yeah, basis and, how, and, and what you can get <laughs> with, and what and what how much um how different your perception of political correctness is. <laughs> like um no yeah the office environment i i'm lucky where i work, I work hmm. with paul yeah you know, um a lot of ex-military and and the it's a not <laughs> It's about as loose an office environment as you can get, right? <laughs> and is effing and blinding, and you know, yeah, yeah. Um, it, it's not crazy, but you got a lot of civilians in there as well. Yeah, but they it's sort of just they just sort of just sort of get on with it. They sort of get on with it. The humor is a big one, though. Yeah, I, I, uh, I, I know a person who shall not be named, right? <laughs> as an example of this. Yeah, do you, I don't know what it was like in the boot next, right? But when I was served with Power Edge, I am digressing here. Sorry, but no, I, no, 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 when I was in free power, we had very few coloured, like black eyes in there. <laughs> and um, and I'm talking, when I say very few, in the 12 years I was there, or 11 and a half, I was there with three power, I think. But at the most at any one time we had in three power was maybe three. Mm-hmm. Maybe three. Um, it was just, I think just the way, I think just the way it was. It wasn't, not, it wasn't through racial discrimination or anything like that. It's just, just the way it was. And, um, but you could, Man, I remember the banter. I remember the banter. It was because most of them were good friends, you know. I happened to be working yeah. closely with a lot of them over the, over that time, and um, one of them, I, one of them, our greeting in the morning would be, "This is when I knew him in depot," and I I say, uh, I say, I said, I say, I say, "Morning, you bastard," <laughs> and uh, I would never, never the n word. Oh, that was like never, yeah. right? But he, and he and his reply would be uh, in his flipping Fijian accent. Morning, who you Welsh? See you next Tuesday. I mean, la- I know you're laughing. That was it. You know, it's like, man, I uh, I know of a person, and he uh, he was at a party, a birthday party, and he got asked to take a photo of everyone, and it was all civilians, right? With one one ex-military person, uh, one other ex-military person there, and this guy had had a couple of drinks, right? And he turned around to take the photo, and so everyone's there, like all together to take this photo, and on the far limit of this gang of people was a black guy yeah and this per- this this guy cracked the joke oh just just be- want to make sure we've got everyone and also we've got the token black person which in the like in him in the in the barracks mate that would have been everyone yeah, yeah. Like, and, and and then the person would be sla- just been like a slagging it doesn't mean yeah, anything. yeah it's like a jag yeah. right did not go down well did not oh, yeah did not go down well for this person at all, mate. Oh, at all, God. tumbleweed. Yeah, 
accu- <laughs> accusations of racism and it's like, oh, oh my god yeah he did not uh, he did not enjoy that but it was also a regrettable incident incident for him <laughs> he, <laughs> he learned from that one i heard <laughs> unbelievable Kurt, honestly you know you, you, you know that person probably woke up next morning and thought what on earth was i doing yeah yeah, that's uh, that's 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 transitioning into Civvy Street. Yeah, well, <laughs> do you know what? I thought loads about this in, in that. You know, in 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 the military, you've got this this bond, haven't you, through shared adversity, whether that's basic training or, mm-hmm. um, you know, just being in the same unit at the same time, getting getting the same shit details from up above, or you know, getting seen off by, you know, we call it pusser, but you know, getting seen off by the system, uh, and it's it's what bond you, and then. If there's an issue, you trust all the people around you to rate. If there is an issue, they'll obviously tell you about it, won't they? They won't. It won't become a formal thing. It'll just be a mate. You're like off the mark with that comment, or you know, you, you look after each other, don't you? In that respect, yeah. You come out into the civilian employment, and it's completely different. But you're still accustomed to the way it is in the military, aren't you? So I was, I was the same in the in the BBC, <clears throat> and I know people <laughs> which will definitely agree with that with me on this uh i was it, it just felt like it t- took ages to get used to that kind of thing you know and that i would i know other people have experienced this as well that you'd you'd crack a funny or what you think's a funny no one laughs <laughs> and then a day or two later you get uh chris can we just have a, a private chat no one wants to offend anyone, no one wants to offend anyone. and it, yeah. it, it, that's what it is they're really afraid of offending people and then yeah. having and having the book thrown in their face because of it. Yeah. And that affects so many things. Yeah, yeah. From from your business and personal your your business relationships in a personal manner, you know, how you get on with people. And it also affects how a business operates because if someone's like afraid to offend someone, they're afraid to tell them you did that wrong. Yeah. They're also afraid to own up that they did something wrong. And take responsibility for it. Take yeah. responsibility and accountability. And there's no punishment. It's like, oh man, it's that's the biggest one. And again, again, that's not across the board. You know, it's just that and that's just the, the the massive difference in in the cultures, yeah, the civvy and military across. It's just it's just the way it is. I'm not saying civvies are any worse than military, but you know, it's it's it's, it's it makes it hard to adapt. Yeah, yeah, and and, it, and for business as well, is that you know the bit the business um, depends on you know profit and loss, doesn't it? So if you're an organisation that doesn't learn anything because everyone's too frightened to say anything, then all that happens is you become irrelevant don't you? And, and much more agile, yeah. better businesses overtake you, innovate better products faster because everyone can, is, you know, feels like they can, they can share their ideas mm-hmm. uh, and you get left, kind of get left behind, don't you? Which is yeah, absolutely. You know, not good for anyone. Yeah. But. Um, well, are you on about BBC <laughs> high risk? <laughs> I guess. Uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> digress all the time. Um, so, <laughs> so uh, well, yes, yeah, so I was in the BBC high risk team uh, and, I started off with a, within a particular part of it where um, uh, it's quite female heavy uh, and, you know, being used to, you know, spent the last six years in the in the Marines, you know, which is which is all blokes. And so obviously you get very comfortable just kind of speaking your mind. And Is it all blokes? And <laughs> is it all blokes? At the moment, I believe it is. And... It, it was a, a very strange situation. It was a very strange feeling because you, you felt like you constantly walk on eggshells because you you never really know knew where you stood with other members of the team. You know, you could yeah. you could obviously build rapport, and the fir- I think the first thing that any of us people have been in the military tried to do is go out there and build rapport with all of your other teammates, don't you? Because it's you know how much of a uh, a good environment it is when 
you get on with everyone around you and and um if there's any conflict to be had you get it done early so that everyone you know is much more friendly and working working place isn't it um but for the the first three months working in this particular team uh because I, I was i was part of the high-risk team but i seconded off to like another part of the organization that uh dealt with um the international officers overseas uh and there were times where sitting in the office in new broadcasting house was it's pretty excruciating because you 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 didn't know if you're doing good or you're doing bad you then got into this strange mindset where you were second guessing yourself you know you, you couldn't really take a a particular stance on something because you didn't really know who would be there to support you or not and this is not again not the high-risk team i'm talking about it's because um, they're all military they're all, you know if you've got a shit idea they'll tell you you've got yeah. a shit idea and it's yeah. uh that you know that was like almost <laughs> like your insulation within the organization but when I seconded off to this other part of it, it you felt very vulnerable and out, you know, and exposed, you know, in that you could you could say, well, I don't think we should be doing this, or I think we need to take this seriously, uh, and it was it almost felt like a roll of the dice as to are people going to agree with me or disagree with me, and am I going to be shot down? Am I going to get supported on this? It's it's kind of hard, and and obviously when you're <clears throat> in the military, you're used to seeing, uh, you're just, you're used to getting instant feedback, aren't you? Like yay or nay or you know especially if you if, you, if you're uh you know a, a troop commander or anyone in position of authority if you give out you know if you, if you say something that's very unpopular then lads aren't afraid to tell you that it's a, a shit idea or it's a <laughs> it's an unpopular yeah. decision isn't it so you get when you're so used to that that instant feedback it, when it gets removed from you it puts you uh on the back foot makes you like less confident i'd say yeah absolutely. Um, well that's something it did with me anyway. i mean just to elaborate on what you're, what you're talking about there with the um you don't know if you're gonna get supported or or you know who's gonna who's gonna back you up that's not a i mean for people listening who who are, are maybe you know about to get out or they haven't had much experience in you know ex-military who haven't got or military haven't had much experience in civic street so that's not about correct me wrong chris that's not about you thinking oh Am I going to be? Yeah, you know, it's not about you needing that, need needing that positive reinforcement. It's about, or often you get an idea, you get an idea in business, or you you have an intention, and but to get to the point where you need to, you can put it on the table and go use my idea. It takes a lot of work, yeah, a lot yeah. of a lot of work. So at the start, if you're questioning, can, um, can I put this across the table and get an honest feedback on it, not based on what it actually is, if it's actually worth it? And if the answer is, oh God, I don't know. Should you put all that work in? That, that's what you're talking exactly, about, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I remember there's one particular instant. Um, so the the Mosul Dam collapse in 2016. Um, I don't know how much about it you know, but uh, essentially the, the Mosul Dam, which which holds uh, a shit ton of water. <laughs> we know. Um, what, I know. What that <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's another one for a dam. Yeah. <laughs> um, so this dam was holding a shit ton of water, obviously, just outside of Mosul. Uh, and it it were it not been maintained for a number of decades, obviously, because what happened in Iraq, um, it were it was slowly eroding, and and what from what my limited understanding of it, uh, my my GCSE science that is basically the dam was getting deeper because of the the um, internal erosion because it was built on like chalk or something like that, like Saddam Hussein decided that this big showpiece piece of architecture would um you know show his authority across the country, and and but actually it was very poorly designed because it just you know, eroded itself deeper and deeper and deeper, and the the glacial water that run off the mountains would just keep on filling it up. So essentially, you can imagine it just it's going like that. The pressure on the wall on the actual dam itself was getting greater and greater and greater. There's no there's like sort of two or three um, 
uh, runoff like outlets for it to for the excess water to go off to stop it from going over the top um, and they were slowly failing like one after another because no one was able to maintain them so the pressure on this wall was increasing and it was um i think early 2016 when the u.s government started to really recognize that there was an actual substantial problem here um and all the all the um, modeling and the forecasting they could see was that if this if the Mosul dam blew it would have been the single biggest humanitarian disaster that the world had ever seen at that point because it follows the line of the euphrates or mm-hmm. i'm gonna guess um and it would have they're predicting they would go all the way down to baghdad it'd wash wash away Mosul, wash away a lot of cities en route to baghdad and because because no one no one ever seen or predicted a humanitarian disaster this big no one could say if baghdad would be completely underwater or if there'd be a slight trickle you know that the the forecasting was so wildly varied that no one could say what was actually happening and I was I was the advisor for our officers in Baghdad at the time, and so we were obviously working through contingency plans, but trying to get the organisation to understand um, just how big this issue could have been was, you know, at times it felt like banging your head against a brick wall, you know, and for somebody so junior, you know, I'd only been in the organisation for like three or four months, I was still cutting my teeth, you know, to then, and I had to go and see specialist people in the FCO who were taking it very, very seriously, and, you know, there's people banding around these like yeah it's days away if not you know not weeks away anymore uh, and then trying to relay this with a sense of urgency to the organization and say i think we need to be investing in contingency planning and <coughs> the equipment for this and we need to take this really seriously you know you just again you'd have to put this out of a meeting and see where it'd go from there um but again you used to get an instant feedback and people are going holy fuck we should take it seriously or not and you you look around at a, a sea of blank faces and you're not too sure if you feel like an idiot or if you feel like you're, you know, you're, you're doing something right for the organisation. And you used to take, um, you used to, <coughs> sorry, you used to, um, <coughs> people looking at things objectively. Yeah. And and listening to the facts that are being said and then making a judgment on that. Yeah. With very little, with very little um, attention paid to the political side of things as in internal politics as to whether they think that you saying this and then people agreeing with you is going to better your career and that's not good for their career. Yeah. All that stupid crap. Yeah. Which yeah. you get everywhere. Which <laughs> you get everywhere. But you get it less in the military. You just get it less. Yeah, there. you do. So yeah, you yeah. Step like, again, you just like, <laughs> <I'm>, civvies. <laughs> you, you know how, uh, how intelligence can be measured in different areas. You know how it's like intelligence now means like you know, different things. You get like social intelligence, like yep. spatial intelligence, things like that. I'm not quite sure what the word is for it, but there must be, there must be a form of like social intelligence, you know, about being able to, I guess maybe it's empathy, I don't know. Um, But it's something which you, maybe it's a skill which you kind of lose in the military a bit because we're used to, you know, saying you give as much, um, give everyone a chance to voice their opinion to a point, don't you? But at some stage you've got to say, right, we're just, fucking doing it you know we're going left flanking we're going right flanking or whatever mm-hmm. in the in the civilian sector because it's not like it's life or death there's so much more conversation that could be had and i think uh managing your frustration but learning to you know understand other people and get inside their heads is is one of those skills which you definitely start to become more aware of when you leave the military i would suggest mm-hmm. um certainly from like for me you know it's 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 an underused skill or lesser used skill in the military but so 
so critical to succeeding outside of the military you know it's 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 something you know i wish they could they could teach on the career transition partnership if it wasn't such a you know this this fub, this nebulous fluffy term you know that's <laughs> mm. like kind of hard to yeah. you know hard to describe you know so it's almost like just you know just n- you know, network with people and and build social capital with them um because that's how you're gonna get anything done as a civilian mm. you know absolutely did the dam burst no i didn't no thank is thankfully it's um, still there now yeah yeah <laughs> uh, i think at the time uh an italian so what happened like there's an italian company that got like u.s uh military security um and they were able to go in and get like the the let off valves i think um oh. repaired and you know they had enough security they weren't uh, they weren't threatened by isis and they could actually repair the dam to a you know much better stage but it was like pretty critical at one point you know mm. people saying there's, there's gonna be a few days before it bursts and even even the bbc itself was re- was reporting on it at the same time as trying to figure out how how we actually deal with it as an organization mm. Crazy. So yeah, it's pretty nuts. <laughs> How do we get onto that? BBC High Risk. Okay, yeah, BBC High Risk. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then yeah, so five months of that. Um, I mean, it's it's great fun, you know. I was surrounded by a military team, but five months of being in New Broadcasting House, um, being in Oxford Circus in winter, you know, it's a pretty bleak place. Um, having to having to commute every day was a. It sounds ridiculous, but have, spending have an fun. hour spending an hour on the tube and an mm. hour back again when you're used to. You know, rolling out in the military, rolling out of your bed, going and getting showered, and like, you know, bre- you know, bre- rolling down to the galley for breakfast, then like you know, five minute walk away to the office. Yeah. You know, <laughs> to to when you start throwing commuting in there, and you know, an hour an hour sounds like nothing out of your day, does it? You know, when you're when you're, but when you spend it on tubes every single day, five days a week, uh, it was just that plus a whole compound of you know things that that led me to just resign from the BBC and go freelance. So um, what? How, how did that work then? What did you do? Free, go freelance doing what? Security. Uh, security advising. Yeah. So I'd love to say there was a, a real business plan and, and, a, and a vision behind it. It was more probably born out of frustration and realizing that I wasn't getting the travel that I wanted. I wasn't um, having the same kind of purpose that I thought I would have outside the military. Uh, and the way that I saw to change this was to go as a consultant, so I could do the fun things that I wanted to do, like you know, running and mountain biking, all the all the fizzings that I love, but then combine it with some international travel and, um, you know, working overseas with, with like more humanitarian organizations. So it was slightly born out of frustration, but there was a, a kind of a loose plan to it as well. Uh, but that's what got me out to Afghanistan the first time. So an opportunity came up um, from an RMP mate to go and do some uh, hostile environment training for the... The RMP as well? Ex-RMP, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Right. <laughs> just get, right. keep that in switch the microphones off <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> who's recording who Let's, who's recording who <laughs> definitely go on. Got a on. <laughs> yeah go on um where, where are we so yes yeah, so next mate um i'm gonna get neat shit for this for tomorrow as well i just know i'm not what, I forgot. <laughs> on, the, on the on the pegasus uh, lunch. I'm gonna have well, to get out. Nah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, no, to, no, yeah. no, 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 no. I'm gonna have to, I'm gonna have to get out as a you know as a caveat. Those well. uh, Pegasus networking lunch are good, mate. Yeah, 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 that'll be yeah. that'll be absolutely. Yeah. Afterwards, you might get slagged. Anyway, because <laughs> like, you were late, we need to yeah, yeah, sorry, sorry. <laughs> um, sorry, I know. Uh, Afghan. Yeah, yeah, so, so I ended up with Afghan. Yeah, so I had an opportunity to go and work with the biggest charity out in Afghanistan, which is uh, the Aga Khan Foundation, um, doing hostile environment training for them for six weeks. Um, so I got got my got my wish to go and see Afghanistan. Uh, I spent six weeks in Kabul um, teaching this charity and 
immersing myself in like you know the NGO uh, lifestyle and kind of how they live out there, uh, live out there and do the do the things they do without the big, you know, security bubble as such. Cause risky, right? Risky. It's, yeah, it's it is really when you come from the military and you've got you know the military prides itself on um shaping things so that you give yourself the best possible chance and then you go to work with a charity sector who are have got a very different mindset in you know security i wouldn't say security is an afterthought um because that's not for, for, for a lot of the big ones but it's um it comes very much secondary to to kind of their operations you know so uh, they do it on a much more um, like acceptance is much more of a bigger thing there mm. rather than hard physical security <laughs> like armored vehicles and body armor and stuff. Mm. Um, but yeah, so it got me out to Kabul for six weeks, which was um, is really illum- illuminating, you know, because obviously um, lost a lot of mates out in Afghanistan, and for the, for the first time, I was able to see it with with um, my own eyes and experience it. Uh, and I, I wouldn't. <laughs> It was it was a great experience, um, but it's only several months after that when I started hearing about these what these athletes were doing there that uh, I really felt I had to go back there uh, as a civilian and and see it again, you know, and investigate these these stories that I was hearing on social media. How did you hear about it? Now? <clears throat> how how are you oh, on social media, right? Sorry. Yes, okay, yeah, right, yeah, yeah. Okay, right. Um, there's a so the Olympic Channel was featured a story about some mountain bikers in Kabul. Um, who were they? They've got these like rudimentary mountain bikes and were doing dirt jumping um, just outside of Kabul. Uh, and f- for for the, obviously the things I'd heard from the military, uh, the time I'd spent in Kabul, it it just seemed like mind-boggling. You know how were how were these kids a managing to get these bikes out there? And they're and they're pretty good bikes as well. Uh, how were they managing to maintain them? And how were they like how how come there wasn't people covering this? You know this story because it was um the the one group in particular which i've been working with uh called drop and ride are they pride themselves on um having boys and girls openly ride bikes together which in Kabul, which as you can imagine uh invites uh a a huge amount of criticism harassment um you know potential targeting by taliban and is uh and for them to do it so (coughs) how old are they mate how old are they like early 20s so they interviewed the two leaders uh a guy called asgar and a girl called zara um who were 19 i think both at the same time and these you know these kids were able somehow to get these mountain bikes in country and they had ramps and they had organization and they would it was just yeah like the look on your face pretty much was the look on my face i I remember like seeing it on, on my on my phone and instantly i was like fucking hell i've got a I've got to hear more about this, uh, and that's and that led me to message a load of people that I met from the charities in in Kabul to find out if I could get a connection. Within an hour, uh, I had uh, their Facebook profiles, um, hmm. <laughs> you know, sent from these these uh, NGO friends, um, and so just added them on Facebook. Um, just started messaging them and was like, you know, what you're doing is really cool. I'd love to come out and meet you guys, okay. uh, and that was just where the conversations went from there. That what what that led to the second time then did it? So that led to, yeah so that led to the next time yeah. What was your plan? Was, what was your plan like? Do a story on it? Do a do a book or what? Um, <clears throat> or anything? Or would you see it? It's so. It it led me to start doing more research to see what other sports were out there because it was it was so surprising you know because given what I'd seen in in Kabul you know <clears throat> it, was, it was just utterly um just could not fathom you know how these kids would get these things out there in the first place so. 
Uh, I did I did a search for other sports out there. Found some parkour free runners. Uh, I found some skiers uh, in Bamyan. Uh, I found um, uh, runners, uh, mountaineers. Uh, you know, it's almost like I was just just picking away at the surface, and all of a sudden, all these other sports were just revealing themselves. Uh, and and you know, you could find you could do like a, a the odd search here and there, and you might see like a very tiny snippet about the skiers or something about the runners or something about the um the mountain bikers had like a little bit of exposure so um i started messaging out mates from from media and like ex-military mates and um ended up with a, a guy coming forward who was uh, a reservist um from my last job in the in the rmr coming forward and saying i'm a videographer um quite happily come out to you i've been out to afghanistan i'd love to come out with you and you know let's see if we can video these guys and see if we can make a documentary out of this mm. um so yeah the idea you know started to form itself went out there with the idea of producing a documentary and um you know literally bimbling around kabul to meet these uh you know these athletes and i'd love to say there was a, a, a like a grand plan for for it but it just started to evolve organically you know it was we could see these these guys doing these really cool things and we we're like you know the world needs to know about this because afghanistan's only known about only spoken about in like conflict mm. You know strife and you know everyone um you know certainly in in you know that i know back here only knows it through the stories that you know my friend my brother family like you you and other people have told um and so i wanted to start showing another side to afghanistan you know this this um unfolding narrative of sports in afghanistan for example well with the with the bike the <clears throat> Yeah, the, mount, the, the mountain bikers, the mountain bikers, mountain bikers yeah. encouraging the you know male and female to do that together. What? What's the motivation there? Given that, given that the repercussions can be flipping lethal, it's on their on them on their families. You know, from people like Taliban, IS, and you're, or just flipping hardcore religious people. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What's the motivation with it? I mean, <clears throat> did, did they try and keep it a secret? Did they? Uh, how do they go about it? Not really. It's um, I think that the motivation is they just, they just love riding bikes. You know, they're they're. I mean, they're, they're essentially kids. You know, they're they're nineteen years old. They're, well, they're a bit older than that now, but um, they were. They just had this love of mountain biking, and actually, their name Drop and Ride came from watching Danny McCaskill videos on YouTube. So, um, you know, that they they'd all had access to to smartphones. Uh, there was like a burgeoning three G network growing out there, so they're able to get access to the internet um they'd obviously at some point procured some bikes started Google, you know googling and and you watching youtube videos of danny mccaskill hmm. and then they were like oh cool yeah so they started doing the tricks oh, you know obviously they're seen on youtube and then they wanted to to form some kind of organization so they uh they you know rip, i'd say ripped off but you know did it in homage to, to danny mccaskill uh and they started inviting other kids to come and join the mountain biking because hmm. they had uh, access to a safe space so they're, they're set up by two hazara um uh you know the asgar and zara uh hazaras um so they're in sort of like a quite distinct part of kabul um and they just started inviting all these other kids who they knew to come and ride with them you know explain hazara um so it's one of the the kind of five or six six ethnicities in afghanistan um huh. you'll have to f forgive me put me on the spot but uh you've, also, you've got pashtuns tajiks uh uzbeks uh hazaras uh, another major one which i think i'm forgetting mm -hmm. uh, i'm doing the dis disservice here but um the hazara community is about 15 percent of the overall of afghanistan 
Um, Quite significant then. Uh, so 15. Quite significant, 15. yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, I mean, they're, they're one of the smallest, uh, no, well, four, I think fourth or fifth uh, okay. like kind of ranking, but um, Pashtuns make up the majority. Mm-hmm. Um, so they, they had this, they, they managed to get this training space in, in West Kabul, uh, and they just started inviting other kids to come and ride with them. And so they had uh, Pashtuns, Tajiks, uh, Uzbeks coming to join them for this mountain biking because they were, they were managing to get other you know other mountain bikes from you know no idea where um and they and obviously they formed this team that you know the drop and ride team and just started uh self-teaching themselves freestyle mountain bike tricks then obviously the the older more capable stronger members then teach it to the younger members and you know so on and so forth but what was so incredible about it is obviously they're they're learning things like english through these through these youtube videos so what they're what they're doing is they're they're then able to create relationships with people outside of their own communities. They're, they're pulling in multi, um, you know, multi ethnicities into this into this training ground through the vehicle of, of freestyle mountain biking, but then they're gaining education for it as well. So they're not, mm. you know, they're, they're as well as going to school, but they're also learning, you know, their English is coming on leaps and bounds because they're watching these YouTube videos. They want to get better at mountain biking, so it's like a, a second order effect of you know their their passion for these bikes is that they're learning english and then um you know when it comes to me messaging asgard the leader of the team through facebook messenger we can have a, a proper conversation on, on facebook and you know he can tell me uh you know we've got these bikes but we need these parts and you know and all, all of a sudden it's like you know we, we have this conversation about doing 360s on his bikes and you know like you know what kind of disc brakes he likes the best and you know it's a, it was a probably one of the more random you know you know the is a situation a situation was growing where i was like this is uh not only incredibly inspiring but something that the world needs to see because um you know particularly from the military community it's afghanistan was a a huge challenge for us you know mm-hmm. you know militarily um we you know we all lost a lot of a lot of mates there and uh you know there's a lot of a lot of um time and effort and energy invested into the country and now and, and there's very very few good news stories coming out of, out of Afghanistan, um, and this was the one which I think that particularly millennials in our you know in the West need to know about is that um, you know there's kids doing exactly the same sports out in Afghanistan as they're doing here in the you know here in the West. Mm. Oh yeah, true. What was what was the uh, what was the what sport had the biggest sort of following out there? Biggest number of participants that you saw. You said you had running. I'm guessing running. You had running. Yeah, you had running. I mean, it's the ones with the low barriers to entry. So, oh, yeah, um, gen- yeah generally <laughs> running. But um, the the running is run for a, sp- a specific charity called Free to Run, um, which is set up by a, uh, an ultra runner called Steph. Um, that that had a, a you know moderately big um, draw to it, but it, it was predominantly female, so female empowerment through through running. Okay. Um, but they allowed like some some younger men to join as well. Um, but in actual fact, it was probably the the parkour team. So the um, I don't know if you, you, you see have you ever seen like free running the guys that run yeah, and yeah. jump off obviously like concrete Mental. bollards and it's it's basically like street gymnastics, isn't it? Yeah. Um, again, that's got such a low barrier to entry. You know, you essentially just need a pair of sweatpants and a pair of trainers, don't you? And you can go and do backflips off anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so for and this is like a majority of a majority male team. Um, you had these young men that were getting together and learning backflips and you know hand i'll say handstands i wouldn't <laughs> handstands. you know all, the, all these weird and wonderful tricks i don't know the name of they were doing them you know out of the street <laughs> um 
you know, again, like you had the you had these like adult. It was set up by a guy called Jamil, who um, again would watch YouTube videos on how to do things, and he would influence the kids around him. And you know, it's almost like this this trickle down effect of you know you had I've seen like kids that are like I don't know eight or nine, maybe ten years old, out there doing backflips downstairs, and you know, part of me saying, "Fucking hell, this is if this goes wrong, that's a ten year old that." you know might be severely injured for the rest of his life but there's another flip side you're thinking this is incredible this kid's like got this incredible gymnastics skill he's doing it without any encouragement from anyone else because he looks up to these slightly older you know yeah. guys who are teaching these skills and it's mm -hmm. you know it's it's i guess it's leadership in its rawest form isn't it you know there's you can't kind of make this thing happen it just it's just grown out of this desire to um better themselves at you know a sporting uh endeavor mm -hmm. um so yeah park park or probably the one of the biggest one although the mountain bikers are growing in size a lot more because they're, they're probably <clears throat> a bit easier to market in places you know because they're they've got a very clear uh narrative you know and they say like boys and girls should you know can ride bikes together um security wise if there's a security incident they can you know they can nip in and out of like parts of Kabul very quickly you know so um they can get away with riding their bikes in you know say in a park in Kabul if they start getting harassed they can just ride away and be away in a few minutes mm, you know so true. it makes them a bit harder to target but um yeah i think also yeah they've got they've got a, a slightly better social media presence as well mm -hmm. um how long were you out there that time then that second time mm. that was that was 2 weeks <clears throat> so i went there uh february 2017 uh, uh sandro who's a videographer mate and i um spent two weeks essentially driving around kabul uh filming the different different sports you know and it was he he would obviously uh concentrate on the filming and i would concentrate on on um you know putting everything together so i guess producing for want of a better word yeah. you know speaking with the contributors and <coughs> organizing all the different uh teams to meet us at various parts of kabul uh we ended we had this this awesome time just driving around the city just hanging out with these different athletes um and it was you know it's largely secured like you know one day we had um uh taliban did a complex attack on a military base um on the route that we were supposed to be going down um and so we had to just kind of abort turn around and go back to the guest house for a day but you know apart from that it was it was largely safe and mm. yeah we, you know, we got to hang out with all these different athletes and it was that that time for me was um it was hugely inspiring because it was again it was it was another it was, you know it's my first self-funded trip out there and i started to realize that this was something that uh, i could have a real effect on you know no one else was concentrating on all these different sports that were happening um and that i was you know it was in a quite a privileged position to be able to start getting their stories out there so i started to leave you know started speaking to mates in the bbc and uh anyone that could that would listen you know about these these athletes that were doing cool things and where um so where yeah, did the took off from there. where did the first Afghan on Everest thing go about then? Can you talk about that or not? Yeah, yeah. Um, so because I think it was Paul said to me that the way you put it is you're trying to connect. You explain it to me. Explain it to me. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't always make sense to me, so you may get several different answers out of me. I'm still. <laughs> piecing it together as to why it's a good thing um but i think i'm getting closer and closer so the reason why the hi hiatus foundation needs to exist is because there's a there's a gap 
for support for these different sports so um women runners for example are getting supported by one charity women mountaineers are getting supported by another charity um I'm trying to think of there's a couple of other charities doing things on individual sports but nothing no one's doing uh s- projects with all the different athletes you know so there's there's uh everyone's working very siloed i guess to to, to give it like business talk mm-hmm. um so i wanted to start to to pull the set together sector together a little bit more and start finding economies of effort you know ways that but because what we're starting to see was that the different sports teams were becoming aware of each other and then seeking out each other for advice and support and um trading ideas you know and mm-hmm. starting to work together so there's this really cool effect of where you're actually um creating this sort of cohesive um group of athletes and influencers positive influencers um you know which inf- you'd hope in the future would translate into um much better relationships for those individuals but that was a, a byproduct um where the everest thing came from was w- wanting to change the narrative of afghanistan because there's there's so many bad news stories about it you know there's it's always a case of this suicide attacks happened or this town's been lost to the taliban or this has happened this happened there's very little um out there there's very little good news stories out there which um change the narrative to to you know the other generation you know we we, we know a lot about helmand we know a lot about uh kabul for those that served there but there's a whole you know, the rest of the country suffers from the bad parts which we in the West know about. Yeah. Um, of the 34 provinces in Afghanistan, depending on what, what um, out agency you look at, the, there's anywhere between 45% and 55% of it are affected by the Taliban. So there's, ho- there's a whole, like, 18 provinces that don't have Taliban um, affected by them. Mm-hmm. One of them's the, the mountains, <laughs> the central mountains region, which is where the Hazaras live. So you've got um you know that's where skiing's popped up for example and like this whole kind of winter mountain sports communities popped up um and so i guess in my quest to start understanding how i could uh change the narrative of afghanistan um and you know whether that helps tourism or not or helps like investment in the future is that i decided that I'd, I'd, I'd do something to help um you know an afghan you know create this good news story which became you know afghan and everest um, i've got this this personal life goal when i left the military that i wanted to um do the seven summits uh but to do this in a slightly different way that that's all the continents right yes yeah, yeah. The, the highest uh highest mountain on every on the seven continents yeah mm-hmm. um obviously everest being the one for for asia uh and so this personal life goal which i'd set for myself started to become entwined with this this charity idea that uh, I wanted to get support for the Afghan athletes. So, uh, on the last trip I went out, uh, the last trip was in t- uh, two weeks ago. Uh, I was very hugely privileged enough to spend a day on the mountains around Kabul with um, some guys who are who are actual mountaineers. You know, in one, in, for want of a better word, they're Afghan mountaineers. Afghan mountaineers. Yeah. yeah. So we we uh, spent a day climbing up to two and a half thousand meters and uh, hung out and had this <laughs> had um, uh, fried eggs and tuna uh, in this in this kind of like bivy spot uh overlooking kabul um is the most the most bizarre but awesome experience i've had in the mountains what what kit are they using have are they got decent kit are they you know when, no, you, no. when you look at them you think mountaineer am i am i looking at you know nims or someone no no no, 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 no. literally um imagine like if what if you walked out onto the street around here pulled the nearest bloke into the studio and then 
six of his mates that's what the mountaineers were wearing in in uh kabul so <laughs> so you, you had everyone from you had one one of the guys who had a pair of donated u.s marine corps boots um yeah. uh some like cotton cargo you know trousers which you know just completely just suck up the water so you step into the snow um you know he's got a day sack and a bit of a, a, a sort of down like jacket uh the you know everyone else was like jeans you know pretty much chelsea boots <laughs> leather jacket you know a, a woolly jumper if he's got it and then um you know like a grocery bag of like fruit or you know one, one of them had a backpack and just pulled out this tray of eggs climbing mountains and yeah and, and we and we were traipsing through the snow for over four hours you know and, and i'm not talking a light dusting of snow as in uh it was knee to hip deep snow for for four hours you know we're, we're trudging up this hill and my, i didn't have insulated boots no one had insulated boots on uh i had trekking boots uh you know within like half an hour you you know your feet were absolutely sodden soaking wet you know you, you start to get a little bit cold and then you, you turn around and there's a bloke in you know leather chelsea boots jeans and you know a leather jacket was anyone in flip-flops <laughs> no. Was, no one that's disappointing <laughs> you left me down in afghanis <laughs> Yeah. Um, but yeah so you know their 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 passion their enthusiasm and their their resi- you know their resilience is just amazing isn't second it? To, you know second to none and it, and it was um they, they wanted to we'd met a couple of days before that to talk about everest um and they wanted to you know they, they wanted to show me this part of kabul which not many other people get to see um so I'll be honest. I was, I was pretty nervous um, arranging it over, you know, over, over Facebook, and I was like, you know, I, the guy, the guy who I stayed with in the guest house um, is a he's a hoofing bloke. He's an ex royal engineer who runs a guest house in Kabul, and it's the only place I'd ever stay. Um, you know, I told him what I plan, and he's like, mate, you know, you've got your, you know, got trackers, you got um, your mobile phones. You know, if anything goes wrong, just give us a buzz, and we'll, we'll figure it out. <laughs> you know and so and, so, and i had um, and not, oh, by the way none, none of them spoke english no, is that you did english. the plans for the bbc <laughs> <laughs> i know i know a lot of people will be listening to this thinking who is this cavalier idiot and why the fuck did they give him a commission in the marines you know i'd like to just like to for the record just say that I, i'm much better at planning things uh i sorry, I, I take it very seriously planning things but i felt like the you know the risk was worth it. The juice, the juice was worth the squeeze. The yeah, day, bless. You know, it. They, yeah, probably would never bloody happen otherwise, would it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Goodness me. Um, but yeah, so we trudged up um, this mountain to two and a half thousand meters. Uh, one of them brought a snowboard. You know, there's like one snowboard between like eight people. Um, <clears> the snow was the snow was frozen, so it was it was um, there's like a two or three inch frozen skin on top of it. So you st- you st- went to stand on it, it'd hold your weight for a millisecond, then obviously you sink. So you yeah your hip flexors are co- just constantly getting oh, thrashed you know God. it's like you, you can't it's not just like walking through snow it's like <laughs> but yeah it's uh you know did, did they go boarding did they no because the because the snow no, was frozen yeah, yeah just it wouldn't support the it was that weird weird kind of snow where you can start, sit on top of it at like 60 or 70 degree slope and not move anywhere it was <laughs> utterly bizarre yeah not somewhere no, not something i've ever seen before so that was your two week trip. That was uh, ten days. That, that one. was that was ten days. Yeah. And then what? How how are you planning on? Which one of the lucky mountaineers is going to go up Everest? 
How's that? What's how far along the plan is that? Um, it's still very very early stage. Um, I've always said that I want to try and get the first male and the first female mountaineer on top of Af- of, of Everest, um, which is quite a quite a ballsy call. Um, it's something that I'm constantly reassessing because the the cultural dynamics of obviously um, getting women involved in in mountaineering as well with men is still very uh, still very challenging. So. Um, I don't, I don't want it to be one of those projects which takes a decade to to happen. Um, you know, I want I want the good I want the athletes to be benefiting from the good news stories you know, now um, to start changing the narrative. So um, I may have to relook at it, but at the moment, um, planning on three men and three women uh, attempting it in twenty twenty one. Awesome. Uh, again, subject to funding, subject to um, clearance. Uh, we've got to do a test. We want to do a, a test climb within afghanistan and um, there's a, a seven and a half thousand meter mountain there called the noshak is there really i didn't know that yeah yeah, yeah it's, it's um yeah it's kind of little little known about so it's <clears> in um uh, near the wakan corridor obviously the the, the part that um obviously levwood and a lot of guys have uh or people have like treks through and it, that's quite a secure area that you can go in through tajikistan and and not have to go through kabul so it's probably you know the more benign area of, of afghanistan mm-hmm. but it's uh, just on the on the border there, mm-hmm. um, and and it make a great a great um, test peak for seeing who could deal with the elevation for for Everest. How um, t- how technical see. is it? Do you know, it's actually more technical than Everest, from what I understand. I I know a few people who've done it, and actually I'm I'm talking to them to figure out um, the logistics of actually making it happen in the first place because it's still it's still very remote. Um, it's only last uh october november that the the first afghan or first woman and the first afghan woman summited the noshak um so it's you know it's still still uh, you know an expedition in itself just to make mm. that happen um and you know an expensive one at that um, but <clears throat> be so. what's yeah. uh where are you at now then with the charity or with the the uh, with the everest expedition with flipping life charity, <laughs> charity hi- 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 hiatus um it's so uh, I'm still within the registration process. So um, t- turning it into like a, an actual charity means having uh, trustees, mission statement, um, proving proving that actually fulfills the need as well. So for a charity to exist, you've got to you've got like 13 lines of operation that you need to be able to prove that you um, that you know that you support, um, like you know, <coughs> veterans is one for example. Um, you know, like children's educations and thirteen, thirteen, yeah. Didn't so, um, you've got to prove you you do something in those thirteen streams that um, you know, it makes it a charitable organisation. Um, so, trying to be a consultant and also make this get this charity off the ground is like the, the hardest thing at the moment. So you're still like doing your your together. risk management advising on the side as well. Yeah? Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm a, a security advisor for uh, media and humanitarian sector, um, and that's that essentially like pays you know means that i can live and, and eat and sleep and uh the rest of the money you know just gets plowed into trying to get this highest foundation idea off the ground mm. um so yeah all the last two times i've been to afghanistan have both been um self-funded trips um so it's uh <laughs> hard work hard <laughs> yeah work. people have that that same look when you say you you know they're T- tell people that i've gone out to afghanistan for a holiday and they're like <laughs> you know they're like oh yeah yeah whatever idiot like, um, <laughs> And she got to Afghanistan <laughs> to uh, go snowboarding, climb some mountains. <laughs> <laughs> what, what's um, what's the hardest with that with the foundation of charity? <clears throat> what apart, like you, you got to 
demonstrate not demonstrate explain the 13 streams what's the hardest what's difficult what's the hardest part about it trying to you know getting registered like that how many hoops did it jump through how like how how rigid are they with the charity in the, char- the charity commission Pre- uh, pretty rigid from what i know um because you know a lot of changes have happened over the last few years as you know there's been um you know the fundraising scandal for example the child safeguarding scandal is it's becoming increasingly more difficult to to set up a charity um mm-hmm. and i guess rightfully so as well because you know there's 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 a load of spurious spurious char- charities out there um there's some which um probably shouldn't be in existence you know there's some which uh, aren't as efficient as they should be um but then you know what wanting to make sure that there's, there's a lot of charities out there and I, I essentially wanted to make sure that what i was doing was filling a fulfilling a genuine need as opposed to just you know make you know having this philanthropic adventure you know which yeah. i was kind of you know passing off as a as a charity and that's good i like that i like that and the reason being is that um I like that, that that the the reason behind the Hiatus Foundation for plugging the gap. There's an actual gap there. A lot of these. I mean, there's like something like four thousand registered military charities in the UK. Yeah, military charities alone, not just charities. Military in the UK. It's mental. Wow. It is mental, right? I can't remember where I got the number from, but it's it's right. <laughs> <laughs> um. And and it, but a lot of that's to do with and again there's there's, there's loads of charities that do the same thing as other charities doing large yeah. and small and a lot of it's to do with when something's uh, well it's poorly managed the charities are just poorly managed as in it, that charity sector is poorly managed you yeah know? um and that's resulted in like you said you get flipping lunatic charities who either just did, I don't have a clue what they're doing. Or they are doing things for the wrong reasons, skimming money, or yeah. whatever you know the score. The, the scams, the scams. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. But it's like a byproduct of being mismanaged. These charity commission being mismanaged, but they ha- but then how do you deal with it? Um, I mean, a, qu- <clears throat> a question I when this subject comes up, a question goes through my head: Is should we should we have a you know a charity de- dedicated to a sector? Like, okay, we're going to talk about. Um, cancer research mm-hmm. right there's gonna be one charity for that cancer research uk for example and yeah. you're gonna be that charity any of the charities that have registered as to do with cancer research or cancer you are all going to be amalgamated and you're part of cancer research uk now yeah so they're all in one body um I, i'm not saying this is a solution, solution i'm literally talking out loud thinking out loud right and then but then you, you can it's easy to regulate them because you'll have less charities you just call, you regulate in the sector as opposed to the yeah because different charities uh, and they get economies sorry to interrupt they get economies of effort as well in that you don't have you know an organization can be much more efficient by having one that manages it you know that brings in that it means they're not all fighting for donations they're not all fighting to get marketing messages out there they're not all having to hire you know hr teams and finance teams and you know the cost the costly stuff just to make a charity happen is where if you amalgamate them then you can get a lot more economies of effort yeah, you could. I yeah, mean, yeah. They, they could still function as, <clears throat> as, as when you brought them all into one, you know, one big charity. You brought the others in. They could still function as a charity, but they, their sector would be narrowed. Yeah. So, think uh, going back to the military side of things, you could have a, a charity deals with mental health. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you got the overarching whatever. And you have a charity, and their job is mental health. Yeah. And that's what they do. They go out. They do their campaigning. They do their fundraising. All that's for. This is for raising money for veterans 
mental health mm-hmm. and we are and we are part of the veterans charity mm-hmm. whatever yeah you, then you'd have a, well a perfect example of a gap a gap filling charity is um care after combat mm-hmm. have you heard of care after combat I can't say I have you can say no they're growing care after combat i've had a couple of guys in the show care after combat founded by jim davidson active active um manager active ceo chairman whatever of it he's, he's really active in it but what they do with is veterans who are convicts veterans in prison okay. yeah so they go help them out and they help them in prison help rehabilitate them get them out and then get them back on their feet in civvy street and help mm-hmm. them and and since they formed i think they these i'm going to butcher these figures <laughs> but since they formed and started and started doing what they do as in helping people in prison out veterans the the reoffending rate has dropped by something like 20 or 30 percent oh wow That's yeah it's, it's huge they only yeah. got a couple of years to the point where they're now going got to the government and going look what we've done here this is i'm not saying well look wow look at us but maybe you should consider something for normal convicts and you're just on this model just go in help out in the manner we're doing and you reduce the reoffending rate yeah, yeah. better for society cheaper for the government prisons got not as overpopulated but you know so uh, yeah, I'm fucking yeah, there, yeah. Uh, it sounds a bit like um, uh, the Three Pillars Project. I'm not sure if you know no, Mike Crofts. Uh, he's an ex uh, tanks officer. Uh, I get introduced to him by by bags. Um, obviously, <laughs> the bags, the bags. The bags <laughs> yeah. um, uh, he's he's doing a great job of doing what you just said there, like rehabilitating um, prisoners through sports. So if we use his rugby as the, the vehicle. Um, and he gives them uh, like a, a, rug, uh, a training syllabus and they come out with a qualification at the end and then, then they have a, a footstep into a civilian career as a rugby coach because he's obviously got a, a business that works alongside of it as well. So it's almost like a whole uh, pathway, you know, gives them the training in prison. When they get out, they've got that organisation they can go straight into and then they start to, you know, manage and transition back into a, a civil society and they've... I can't. I don't know. Again, it would be remiss of me to try and guess the figures, but it's a you know the, it looks like it works from uh, from all well, the videos. I spoke. Uh, yeah, I spoke. I've just. I have spoken to Mike Croft. Yeah, I, I'm sure. I sure I heard about that, and someone put him on to me to talk to him for the podcast. But yeah, I've not heard of three pillars. There's um, hmm. Yeah, there's. I mean, there's some awesome charities out there. Do really good work. You know. Yeah, yeah. Flipping, but. I, it, again it's one of those things it's almost pointless to even discussing it because there's, there's no way back what yeah what, what it's like a devolution what you're going to do bin all these charities in the head it's just it's just so flipping complicated now what would you do yeah and, and, and i must admit actually that was and i must have kicked around the idea of a charity for at least six months um it, it all started off in uh what was it early last year when um the mountain bikers they had, they had gopros uh and they broke their last working gopro and they asked me if i had any spare ones and i, I kind of looked over my shelf and realized i had a, a gopro one and two just sat there gathering dust um and you know sent it out to them and it was you know there was a need and we're kind of like you know plugged this gap if you were so you know at the time it was like oh it's simple just send them out the gopros um but then uh i, I put a call out, call out on social media and said has anyone else got any more gopros because it'd be really cool to send these out to the these afghan sports teams uh and again just you know facebook messengers went nuts with people saying oh i've got an old gopro i mean can't be asked to put it on ebay 
if you're in London next week, I'll give it to you then. We'll grab a coffee and, or, you know, just send it to you. And it was almost like it was, I was taking a job off other people because they couldn't be asked to put it on eBay or sell it. We know what to do with it. And I was like, well, I've got, you know, mates who travel out to Afghan, you know, frequently. I just give it to them and they pass it on to the athletes. Um, and, you know, again, it was like, this is, this is really a really good feeling. And there's, you know, a need and a, and a, and a solution here to kind of two problems, but it's not like you can make a charity out of just recycling GoPros, you know, or you, or you should, you, you shouldn't make a charity out of recycling GoPros. But, um, what it did, <clears throat> what it did help me to understand actually was that the way that social media can help these athletes is by increasing their profile and then getting them future gear donations they've got the resources to do these sports uh and actually their their barriers to entry are brought down um yeah so yeah it, you know the kind of hiatus foundation was literally there for for fixing short-term uh specific focused needs rather than just being a charity for charity's sake um because i think that's you know the worst thing a charity can do is just exist to continue its own existence uh, uh, the aim of the hi- um, uh, the aim of the hi- hiatus foundation right is i'm asking so just to want to clarify it right mm-hmm. is to enable these sports in afghanistan specifically right specifically uh, it's it started off as conflict zones in general but then uh, yeah focusing on afghanistan this is a start point right yeah. so conflict yeah. zones in general um <laughs> raise awareness for those countries that isn't as uh, it, it, there are positives it, not i was gonna say isn't as bad as it seems it fucking is bad there but there are positives there and you can help the highest foundation is there to help these positives grow yes yeah yeah right. so it's it's there to obviously sports sports is a uh provides like psycho, psychosocial support in times of need doesn't it i mean um you know when i grew up in 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 somerset you know mountain biking was my kind of my go-to sport for you know just dealing with like the rigors and challenges of growing up you know in a, um in Somerset, yeah, in Somerset, I know there's a, there's, a, there's rigors in Somerset as well, yeah, yeah, I know. A, um, yeah. When the cider runs out, it's uh, you know there's like just all, all kinds of fighting between yeah. the yokels. Yeah, go on. Um, uh, so yeah, so so the Heights Foundation, I guess, exists to um, continue that form of psychosocial support because it's you know the, these kids when you see them riding, they are they're having a fucking great time you know it's like all of a sudden they forget they're in a conflict zone and it's more about goofing around on bikes or rollerblades or you know any one of the other kind of sports that you see out there um and you know that's that's improving their quality of life for one thing it's making them a little bit happier i think it's probably um i'd say it's distracting them from uh the draw of fundamentalism um you know if they're if you're busy playing with bikes and you know skateboards and things and you you're not really interested in you know in in fundamentalism you know it, it's it, you know if you almost like if you can make that such a boring irrelevant concept like will it die away of its own accord um you know that's a, a whole other kind of um subject of discussion but um there's so many benefits to the sports out there that just just giving them the, the actual act of giving a gopro out to um to one of these athletes is it's not really about the GoPro. It's more the fact that somebody on the other side of the world gives a shit enough to put a little bit of effort in and send out a, you know, uh, this this you know. So it's it's all it's, it's not only a GoPro. It's a message. You know, it's like 
mountain bikers in this country are thinking about mountain bikers in this country and this is where i think you get that pan global um support network of sports it's it's where you know it's where politics politics can't ever do that you know politics um you know tribes you know they're they're very geographically bound aren't they sports sports has the ability to transcend languages to transcend countries to transcend politics to transcend tribes and this is why i believe so much in that uh sports is a great thing for afghanistan but right now traditional aid and charities aren't aren't focusing on it you know it's all about the um you know in parts of humanitarian need but then also you know people are trying to fix uh governance institutions or you know trying to bring about peace when in actual fact you know these these kids you know and they are they are fucking kids you know these are the ones that are are the future of the country and they're the ones that are you know getting kind of looked past you know it's it seems like a no-brainer that you'd um you know you just invest in these kids and as soon as the the last of the Taliban start to die off, you know, you're left with a generation of of people that, um, you know, are, are educated through these sports. They're um engaged. They've got relation healthy relationships with their peers. They've got a healthy approach to life. Um, you know, it's it's for me, you know, watching it grow on a day day by day basis is probably one of the most inspiring things of, you know, uh, you know, my day. Um, mm. it's of all the you know of all the, the of all the negative um time all the negative press that afghanistan gets and you know the negative stories that we hear and and the badness we hear about the country there's there's 10 stories going on in kabul and and bamiyan and and uh, mazari sharif you know of good things that are happening it's just they haven't got the attention of the world yet in mm-hmm. my opinion Mm-hmm. I just rambled massively then. No, it makes perfect sense. It's not something <laughs> I thought about before. Um, makes perfect sense, and uh, it's interesting what you say about about giving giving an, a stimulating alternative to the norm, and and drawing them away from the fun, fundamentalism, you know, and and almost perceiving it as a God, you can't do that. Yeah. If I can do that, I can't go for a run. And not for a run. I can't go meet the other ladies and, yeah, yeah. and go in and do something that I'm not allowed to do normally. Yeah, yeah, you know, exactly. Yeah. Mountain biking or or uh, go or go um, mountaineering in my flipping <laughs> in, <laughs> in my jeans. Mad madness, isn't it? Madness. What um, are you all set up for the Pegasus Networking lunch tomorrow? You talk. Uh, mostly, yeah. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm, walk- I'm walking in there with the expectation of uh, getting neat shit as soon as I open my mouth and say, I'm an ex RMP and bootneck. I never deployed to Afghanistan, but I'm going to talk to you, room full of badass warriors, about what's good about no, Afghanistan. Mate, you know, <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. You get, a mi- you, get a, you get a mixer and you get business people like me. You'll, 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 you'll be on the ball. You'll be really well received. Be yeah. really well received. You're missing good people there. Um, I yeah, I can't, I can't, I can't, don't think I can get there tomorrow. Possibly, if I can, I will. If I can, I will. Um, yeah, we got about four minutes left. Short one, <laughs> as I said, because the uh, the officer, yeah, BBC high risk, um, Marine RMP was late. Apologies, <laughs> <laughs> I try and blame it on London, but you know, <laughs> um, my bad admin. Yeah, a few minutes left. What? Uh, Anything we haven't covered you want to go on to? Anything, so where do you want to direct people to? How do people find you? Um, Shameless plug. 
what? shameless plug okay uh hiatusfoundation.com um again and saw that on on social media uh massive shout out to team rubicon uk um if there's people here listening to the podcast who are in transition um i would massively steer them towards team rubicon uh, i think it's like one of the best um transition tips you know that you can have um it gives you an instant network when you get out of the military it gives you a support function in that you can talk to like-minded people um you may, worst you, case scenario you can crash there overnight if you know if all else goes pete tong you made a really good point mate that um i james glancy on yesterday yes yeah I saw, you yeah. made a really good point that we came on there as well just just by chance and you said when you were talking at the start you were saying about uh transitioning out of the military and city street and one of the things you identified is that lack of objective mission meaningful meaningful work you know you're talking about and um i i, I felt the same thing J- james james did this, did the same and i think that i mean when you when you were talking about it earlier i think we're, <clears throat> we're lucky oh, it took me flipping years to realize it but we're lucky in that we realized it at a point guaranteed right guaranteed there are people listening to this I fucking guarantee it mm-hmm. i know i got some friends who listen to this who in exactly the position like i was in you know i think it, it, not exactly the same position but sort of mindset i think in they just seen at me oh they're just not happy they don't yeah. know what it is yeah they think oh, i've got a shit job or oh i don't i don't like my life i just they don't even know what it is it's yeah, like yeah. what the fuck i'm not i something's missing and they got and when they get when they get a, they get a good feeling when they meet up back up with the blokes or the ladies if they're, if they're, if they're a, a lady serving they get get meet up with the units make a phone call have a piss up so often and they get uh-huh. a good feeling then yeah, yeah. and then that, and then they don't get it any other time so they're like, i miss the military i well, i should never go out or this that or the other as you said earlier and you said with, and team rubicon is a really good example it's not the only mm-hmm. example it's a really good example though yeah and as i said with jim yesterday when we were talking is that <clears throat> find something that is a like it's a good thing to do a, a good thing that do, do, doesn't cost you money yeah yep. it might cost you a bit of time right and a perfect route for that is charity because charity yep. is a bite your hands off for help mm-hmm. that could be something as simple like going down to the soup kitchen down the road and dishing out soup once an evening to help Homeless people, right? Yeah, yeah. On the total flip side, or the opposite end of the spectrum, it could be a Team Rubicon UK t- type of thing mm-hmm. where you're getting trained up for free, you get trained up, you're working with like-minded people, and your role, if you flip in bleep because of, you get the fo- or you get the phone call is, uh, Hugh or Chris, there's been a, well, look at Africa at the minute. Is it Africa? Mozambique, yeah. Mozambique. Yeah. He, right, Hugh, get your kit ready. Um, if we get the call from Mozambique, we're going. Because yeah. they go on invitation, aren't they? We're we going to go. Are you going to go? Yeah, I'm good to go. Yeah. Man, the it, hair's in the back of your neck stand It's exciting, up. isn't it? It's good. Yeah, yeah. Now. Your hair's in the back of your neck stand up. You go, go in, going out. You're on a mission. You're going out and you're going out. And not only are you just going on a mission, going out to do stuff, you're going out to help people. It's like the, it's the best thing yeah, ever. Yeah. It's best yeah. thing ever. I, I remember, you, I think you said in your last podcast, uh, it gave you a, what was that line you said? It was like it gave you an opportunity to break out the cry trousers and yeah. <laughs> Aku boots again. I was yeah, like, yeah, yeah. that is exactly yeah, it. Yeah, it's really it it? like because yeah. it, it sense purpose. Yeah, yeah. You gotta have it. You gotta have it. So yeah, this, yeah. if you if you flipping sitting there, this is the uh, we're on the couch now with uh, with Councillor Hugh, with Councillor Hugh. If you flipping sitting there and you just like <laughs> I I just I feel like shit. I don't know what I'm doing. I really miss the military. I'm really happy when we speak to the blokes. Other oh, ladies, it's like what? What do I fucking do? Go and just, just do, just 
have a think about it sign up to something and 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 be a, and try and get yourself a part of a team with a purpose again. Yeah, yeah. Team of a call may, be, may not be the thing for you. It could be something else. But there's opportunities yeah, there. There's, Just there's try it. Serve on. Yeah. Just try it. I'd, I think, like to sh- yeah, to, 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 to share uh, a Chad quote in like the last couple of minutes, which I know you obviously run over. Um, <clears throat> this was exactly what I the problem that I struggled with when I left when I left the BBC and that. So when I left the military, I was like. There's something missing from my life and I can't figure out what it is, but I know it's definitely missing. And I'm not getting it in a new broadcasting house. I'm not, you know, I'm getting fat sat there from drinking too many coffees in this place. And it's definitely something that's triggering that. Um call it the the <laughs> wanting to be near the pulse of life. And again, I I realise it sounds mega chad, but I think once you spent um ten, you know, how many years in the military and you've been on R one or you've you know you've gone out the door, you've been on ops, or you've gone off and done um, you know even flood responses in the UK as part of the military. Is that it's whilst it feels like you're getting seen off all the time, there's also it also gives you something which you can talk about and and no one else can take it away from you. And it's I think that's what for me Team Rubicon gives me back is like that sense of, not only sense of purpose but also that excitement of being like if something happens, I might actually be able to go and do something about this. You know this yeah. this happened in um 2017 when the hurricane irma struck uh the the virgin islands it, yeah. you know again it was like somebody from the virgin islands contacted me and i put them in touch with team rubicon and then i was like fucking hell why am i why am i passing off to somebody else why am i not going out there myself to manage this relationship and so you know again like two days later was at the airport waiting to fly out to virgin islands you know and i was like this is this is what i miss this i like you know i like this shit just being out there and doing you know, interesting things that have been near the pulse of life. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Good luck. <laughs> hey. so, well, that's how Chad that is. <laughs> <laughs> that's not. It's on the board. Chris, it's been a pleasure. That's it for today. I hope you enjoyed. Hope you enjoyed it a lot. You can support the, the podcast going by going to patreon.com forward slash hour. You can support in different ways at different tiers. The highest tier, of which is only a select number, a finite number of people can sign up to the highest tier. Those people get invited along to certain podcasts throughout the year. So you can come and sit in the studio. That's my phone going. They come and sit in the studio. They can meet the guests, perhaps socialize afterwards. And, uh, yeah, that's uh, that's how I do the reward in with the old Patreon supporters. It really helps with the production of the show. Um, this perks for all the tiers, really. So patreon.com forward slash hour, or go to the website charliecharlie1.com and click on become a patron. Uh, another shout out. Thank you very much. Westway Nissan, UK's largest Nissan dealership, uh, and up to 20% discount for serving personnel or veterans. Westwaynissan.co.uk, uh, teamrubiconuk.org, Disaster response charity formed predominantly of ex-military volunteers. Go and sign up with them to be a volunteer. Or if you can, donate. Every little helps. TeamRubiconUK.org forward slash donate. And lastly, but not least, Rugby for Heroes. RugbyForHeroes.org Remember, they've got their beer and gin festival raising money for charity on the 10th and 11th of May up in Leamington Spa at the Old Leamingtonians Rugby Football Club. It is also doubling up as the H Hour 2019 guest party. Get your backsides along there. I will see you and I'll see everyone else with uh, yeah, slightly blurred vision at the end of the evening, I reckon. But it's going to be a good one. Until the next time, out.